antidote to tyranny is knowledge and acting with courage to defend our most basic rights, life, liberty, and property, dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone. Here's Peter Mack. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty News Radio. I'm Peter of the Peter Mack Show. Tonight is November 21st. We're glad you're with us. And um, my special guest tonight is Stefan Kinsella. And he is a patent attorney and a libertarian author. And I read one of his articles this morning and was so intrigued with it because intellectual property rights are not something that I've thought a great deal about. And I just thought the uh, the uh, current state of them was appropriate for those of us who are libertarians or anarchists, that is, people who believe the government shouldn't be involved in our, our lives at all. And so uh, after having read this article, it... It really caught me. I thought, wait a minute, this this makes a lot of sense. And then uh, Stefan had me listen to or, or suggested I listen to a speech by a guy at the uh, von, Mises, or von Mises Institute, so I did that. So, I mean, it, it didn't take me very long to think, yeah, this, this seems to be correct. So, in any case, he was willing and gracious enough to come on the air with us tonight. So, uh, wanted to have him on and, and talk about intellectual property rights. And so... Uh, Stefan, if you're there, uh, thanks for, uh, again, taking time to come on on such short notice. Uh, I'm here, and uh, glad to be here. Thanks for asking me to be on, Peter. Great. Well, um, the, the, the notion that I – or the belief, I should say, that I came uh, with into this discussion, you know, 24 hours ago let – me, let me put it this way. I just assumed that intellectual property rights were like other property rights. In other words, if I – if I write something and copyright it, it becomes mine, and others cannot use it without in some way compensating me for that. If I invent something, uh, then that becomes mine. Somebody else cannot invent something too similar, and I realize that's a, a gray area. But but you're a patent attorney, so you've obviously dealt with these kinds of questions. Um, and maybe before, maybe before we start talking about that, you can just give us a, a, maybe a brief synopsis of how you became a, a libertarian, if that's how you refer to yourself. And sure. in particular, I think it's fascinating that you're an attorney because <clears throat> whether, whether it's correct or not, my experience, most attorneys tend to be rather left-leaning. They, they, they like the government to settle disputes between two people, and, and, and you don't seem to fall in that camp, right? No, I don't. There's, there, are, uh, there are some rare exceptions among attorneys, but I think that's by and large correct. I think attorneys, uh, um, I mean, there are some heroic attorneys out there, uh, but uh, by sure. and large attorneys tend to be among the worst, I think, in terms of being statists and advocates of the regime. Um, right. Maybe just because they are you know, part of the system and they're so invested in it and uh, that they have more of an opportunity to uh, sort of be spoon-fed the state's justifications for the laws and to kind of be part of it. Um, I'm not really sure why. Um, but, no, I was, I was just – I'm from Louisiana, and I was always a sort of a conservative uh, uh, individualist type and, uh, of course, was exposed to Ayn Rand like so many people uh, and in right. high school and uh, was a pretty strong uh, uh, objectivist-leaning person for a while. Um, afraid to read works by Mary Rothbard and others that seemed similar to her capitalism because I, I thought she, was, uh, cor- she must be correct in denouncing the libertarians, although they seemed very similar to her political views, which made sense to me. Right. But eventually I started reading the others, too, uh, you know, uh, Bastiat and uh, Hazlitt and Mises and um, Rothbard and, and others, and uh, Milton Friedman, 
and you know, eventually uh, realized that I was a libertarian, and then uh, realized uh, pretty early on um, that the logic of the political principles of objectivism you know, condemn not only aggression by private criminals, but also aggression by the state, and that the state is necessarily an aggressive type of entity. So became an anarchist uh, pretty early on, probably early, early, uh, early college, where I was majoring in engineering. And uh, so I was a libertarian for a long time. I'm, um, uh, this was back in say the early '80s, mid '80s. So I've been a libertarian for quite some time. Um, and uh, I've become probably more Austrian over the years. Uh, and I did accept for a long time the basic idea that, like like you mentioned earlier, that intellectual property is just another type of property. It's a, kind of a strange or bizarre one that no one seems to really understand. Um, this arcane area of law, which Ayn Rand and other libertarians and conservatives and pretty much everyone in the West assumes is a, a legitimate part of Western property rights. So you sort of just take it for granted. You you know you know that there's some problems with it, but it's such a, an arcane area of law, you don't really understand it. And you assume that the experts know what's wrong with it, and maybe it could be tweaked by an expert in an ideal utopia. And when we get there, we can do that someday, and someone will look into it. But um, um, you know, but it always bugged me the idea of IP because the the main justification I read for it was Ayn Rand, and you know she has this overarching principle view of rights in everything else she does. It's not really utilitarian or consequentialist or sort of ad hoc, um, which is what I liked about it. But when you read her defense of patents, it's sort of like she just happened to take um, the, the fact that the American Constitution enshrines patent and copyright as legitimate, and so she had to find a way to justify it. So, for example, right. um, Ayn Rand thought, mistakenly it turns out, she thought that in America we had what's called a first-to-file patent system which most of the rest of the world does, which is one reason she may think that that's the case, but we are fairly unique in that we have uh, technically a first-to-invent patent system. Um, but she thought we had a first-to-file patent system. So there's a sort of contorted argument in her, in her, uh, in her uh, article for why a first-to-file system is justified. So you can see she bent over backwards to try to justify um, why the first guy to race to the office gets the right, even though he didn't even invent it first. And, you know, she right. basically repeated the mainstream logic you'll hear in law school that, you know, we have to give incentives to people and it's only fair that, you know, if you know that there's this ability to apply for a patent and you don't, you know, you sit on your, you know, you sit on your heels and you don't apply for it, well, you can't blame the other guy for beating you there first. You know, that kind of, that kind right. of uh, unprincipled reasoning. And, and right. I was actually just reminded the other day of something someone had, uh, I'd written a long time ago, someone had reminded me of, um, I'm not sure if it's true. It seemed true, and I think I had validation for it. But apparently when Rand was younger and sort of learning about the American system, she actually um, uh, thought eminent domain was legitimate because it's in the Constitution. So right. she sort of had this knee-jerk assumption that everything America did was, was valid because it looked so much better to her than the Russian system she was coming from, I guess. Um, yeah. And I think she changed her mind on that later on. But uh, it just shows you that she was sort of um, – just taking for granted what was in the Constitution. But anyway, it sort of bought, it, it never did make a lot of sense to me because he has this contorted argument for why it makes sense that the U.S. government protects patents for about 17 or so years. And, you know, she has this argument, well, it can't be zero, of course, and it can't be infinite because it's really unfair to give rewards to the descendants of the descendants of the descendants of the creator who really didn't have anything to do with it. 
So she's already right off the bat sort of recognizing it's not like regular property because I can leave my car or my, you know, my wristwatch to my grandson and his grandson and his grandson, even though they didn't do anything to deserve it either. You know, so right. she's treating them differently from the bat. So um, even in law school, I always kind of this issue nagged at me, and uh, I started practicing law and then moved into patent law because I was an electrical engineer, and this was 19 early 1990s and that field of law was getting to be hot back then and very popular, so I moved into it. And uh, I liked it at first. It was, it's interesting working with inventors instead of attorneys, so that's one good thing okay. about being a patent attorney. Uh, engineers and inventors are much more normal and real people than lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, uh, and, and, and the engineers tend to you know, treat patent attorneys with more sort of respect than they do a regular attorney because they know they have an engineering degree and they... They're not complete math, math illiterates and things like that, you know. So it's, it's kind of right. an enjoyable career as a lawyer. Um, okay. And so, but the, I kept thinking about it, and finally, you know, I'd been doing it for a couple of years, and finally I, I, I kept trying to find one way after another to justify it, and I was thinking there must be a justification, but finally I tried, the, I tried it the other way. I said, well, wait a second. What if, what if there is no justification? And sort of all these dominoes fell into place. When you just think to yourself, well, wait a minute, maybe there's no justification. Maybe it's actually wrong. And then, yeah, oh, this makes more sense now with the way property rights are derived and homesteading and the nature of scarcity and the nature of contracts and everything just falls into place. And especially when you become an anarchist and you realize, well, wait a second, patent and copyright are just big government legislative schemes. And unlike, um, you know, tort law, for example, or contract law, which you can envision arising and did arise in a sort of decentralized court system in, in Rome or in England um, or could arise in an arbitral or a private system, you can imagine these things happening. You know, two people go to court to settle a dispute, and someone trying to do justice would say, well, you made a contract, you made a promise, you hurt this guy, so then a, a legal rule is developed that, that makes sense and is compatible with libertarianism. But these big legislative artificial schemes like... Uh, Okay, Stefan, there's our uh, music letting us know the first break is up. So sorry to cut you off in mid-thought there, but we'll get back in just a minute, folks. So stay with us. You're listening to Peter Mac Show, and Stefan Kinsella and I will be right back in a couple minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're glad you're with us tonight. My special guest is Stefan Kinsella, and he is a patent attorney, and we we're just getting into the issue of intellectual property rights. But he has written on a number of subjects that are very uh, interesting to me in terms of freedom and uh, libertarian ideas and so forth. And I would encourage you to take a look at his website, which is Stefan Kinsella. That is Stefan with an A on the end, S-T-E-P-H-A-N. And then Kinsella is K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A dot com. And I'll put that on my website, of course, after the show is over so that you can uh, click on that and uh, and look at some of his other writings. But uh, back to the issue of intellectual property rights, Stefan, if we could. Sure, yeah. And feel free to interrupt me if I'm sort of droning on here because uh, I'd be happy to discuss it. But um, just to kind of lay out an overview, some people who are new to this, like like you were and like, a lot of others are sort of find the, the 
the, the initiating process into it interesting. But, um, um, you know, like, like I said, uh, if you're an anarchist, you know, you realize that these patent and copyright schemes require legislation. I mean, they are right. legislated schemes, and they're sort of artificial rights. They were invented and introduced by leg- legislatively in the last few centuries. Um, and so if you're an anarchist, it's like it's pretty obvious just from that basis alone that patent and copyright, at least in the forms represented in the statutes, cannot be justified uh, any more than the Americans with Disabilities Act could or, or a minimum wage type law, which are impossible to conceive arising uh, in a private society. Um, right, but if I may just interject sure. here real quick, um, yeah, I certainly see that, but and again, having not thought about it much at all until this morning when I read your article, one could still uh, arrive at the position um, initially that indeed these rights exist, it's just not appropriate for the state to defend them. So all the legislation about them might be um, uh, illegitimate, uh, but you know, just as uh, property rights don't go away when the, when the government goes away, it just means we have to look to private sources to protect property rights. And so one could initially, it seems to me, start out saying, well, we still have these rights, but we're going to have to find another way to protect them, uh, you know, when, when the state goes away. I, I think you could, that make you sense? could look at it that way, and I, I, I see what you're getting at. I think, I think uh, uh, to the extent I would agree with that, I would view that as there's a sort of moral component with um, – with uh, honesty and attribution, recognizing ownership, giving people credit, um, and maybe even you know supporting people who give you things that you like. You know, sort of like people uh, contribute now to um, to uh, some of these uh, websites and podcasts that they like and things like that. Um, right. But it, to, to me, to, to call it a right, I mean, if you think about how it would have to, what it really means to have a, a patent or a copyright, and what they have in common is that. It's basically, a, if it's a right, it, it's a grant by the state or by whatever legal system is enforcing rights that permits you, as the holder of that right, to basically have a veto over the use by someone else of property that they already own. So you can tell someone, look, you cannot do X, Y, and Z with that paper or with that car that you own. You can't tune your carburetor in this way to get better gas mileage because I thought of it first. Or, or not even right. I thought of it first, but because I registered it first with this agency over here, and they right. gave me a piece of paper. And so to call it a right means you have the the right to stop someone from using their property as they see fit. And to me, that's at least from at first glance, that's that's a type of trespass or a type of redistribution of right to, to transfer full ownership or part of my ownership of my property to some other guy just because he thought of a way to use his property. Right, and that's what—that's ultimately what sort of brought me around quickly this morning. Is—is is that and that you know the guy uh, Jim Tucker was making that very point on the, the uh, audio uh, recording that you had me listen to this morning. Yeah, yeah Jeff Tucker. Jeff Tucker, sorry. Yeah. Right. Um, well, let me ask you. I, I've listened to some of your shows, and um, I listened this morning after we we just, we, we contacted each other and um, listened to the, the debates with Stephen uh, Molyneux. And the the objectivist, and also uh, part of your uh, Montessori uh, thing, because my child is in Montessori, so I thought that was interesting. Um, but I, I wasn't. I'm not clear on what. I mean, as an anarchist, I would assume you are more of the principal type of libertarian, more than a utilitarian type who sort of uh, approaches things from 
you know, let's let's balance these issues and find out what works best. I mean, I'm assuming that, right? Or, or is that oh yeah, I, I side with the principle. I mean, I, I I like like one thing you said on one of your are you writing that you had me read this morning that really caught my attention. You know, coming out of the field of math was uh, the non-aggression principle as opposed to the non-aggression axiom, right. and that is right. you know. Yeah, private right, our, our property rights exi- exist first, and that's why it's wrong to aggress against somebody. You're, in effect, violating their property. So um, just to be clear, yeah, I don't, um, I don't um, uh, promote anything just simply on the basis of, well, this will maximize the greatest good for the greatest number of people, so, right. you know, that utilitarian goal or anything. I say let's look at the principle and see where it goes. And well, um, go ahead. Well, I'll just the reason I the reason I was asking this and this interests me. I mean, it, it's interesting to me what convinces people to sort of start seeing the light on IP. And this is one of the rare fields, in my experience, where we actually have been making some progress in the last few years. I mean, usually people are pretty set in their views. You know, they're an objectivist or they're an anarchist or they're they're a minarchist or they're a pro-choice or they're whatever. But uh, I mean, I think we've seen an increasing movement of, of libertarians toward the anti-IP position. And, I mean, I've seen it in my the last five or, or ten years a lot, especially in the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jeff Tucker, for example, on the Mises, he writes on the Mises Institute. He sees it a lot. Um, uh, Boulder and Levine, who've written on it, do. And so I was kind of curious what made you think about it and what 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 was persuasive to you. And I'm assuming it was because you are a principal type of libertarian. Um and what makes me think well, I that, certainly uh, like to see myself that way, sure. <laughs> if, <laughs> well, I mean, not every libertarian I, is. I mean, some libertarians, you know, say, well, I, I, I favor vouchers because I, I just, I'm in favor of what works. You know, they have this kind of, right, right. kind of approach to things. Uh, right. But what I was going to say was most people talk about IP and justify it or oppose it on these sort of uh, consequentialist or, or sort of wealth maximization ideas. That was never ever my approach, even from the beginning, even in the justification of it. And Rand's approach didn't really explicitly go there. So I was never really focused on, even on the inside as a patent attorney, you know, um, does it make sense to me that patents stimulate innovation? I mean, to me, it was pretty obvious from the beginning, especially as an Austrian inheritance of Austrian economics, that you can't really measure these things. So it was always a question of principle for me. And, you know, when you have someone saying, well, you can patent a new carburetor, but you can't patent E equals MC squared. You know, and you can have a copyright on a song, but you can't have IP in a perfume smell. Things like this, it right. seems arbitrary. And then when you say, well, right. the patent term is 100 years and the copyright term is 17 years, not 15 and not 28, you start seeing that these are just completely arbitrary lines, and it's sort of, I think to me that's what makes it start breaking down. Um, right, but, so... so- at the initial stage, for somebody would at this point, as you're describing it, it seems to me one would have to say, "Look, we're going to have to be. It's going to have to be all or nothing. If you can't, you're, if you can, if you can patent certain inventions like a carburetor, then it's got to be possible to do, um, uh, you know, a carburetor. And if you can copyright certain things, then you ought to be able to copyright recipes, like Jeff Tucker was talking about this morning. You can't copyright a recipe. Well, why not? If I if I can copyright right. an essay that I write, why can't I copyright a, a recipe? Right. It's my yeah. it's my quote unquote invention of how to put food together. It's got to be all or nothing, it seems to me. And, and the judges and the and the patent attorneys and the and the Congress critters will give you reasons why, you know, they make these distinctions. But of course, they're just the sure. standard. 
legislative and status rationales they give for all their arbitrary legislative distinctions and their various laws. Um, right. But, you know, they don't make sense to me. And I think one, in my mind, one breakthrough that made it really make a lot of sense to me was I kept thinking, why why do people make this mistake? What is what is? Yeah. Okay. okay. Sorry. I know. Okay. You abruptly stop when you hear the music, and yeah. I understand that. Well, it, it is the signal that that we're at the break, unfortunately. So we're at the bottom of the hour, obviously, here, folks, and we'll be back with Stefan Kinsella in, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in just sure. a couple minutes and continue with this uh, very interesting discussion on intellectual property rights. Here at Liberty News Radio, I am Peter Mack, and we are talking to Stefan Kinsella tonight. He is a patent attorney, an author, a libertarian in the Houston area, and uh, has graciously agreed to come on very short notice tonight and discuss intellectual property rights, uh, what they mean, if anything. He is, as I said, a patent attorney, so he's obviously uh, very knowledgeable in this area, and uh, Stefan, uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, though, when the music pops up, we sort of cut you off, if not in mid-thought. That's <laughs> in okay, mid-sentence I even. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, just continue on, and then I've got a, a couple questions for you in, in a minute. Sure. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say one thing that helped me really see clearly um, what, what the crucial flaw of, of, of the IP position for the libertarian is, is, is that there's sort of a looseness when we talk about where rights come from. And we libertarians are, are all about, you know, homesteading property and producing things and um, trading and contracting. And so we, you, you will sometimes hear, if you read, people will, if, when they try to syst- be systematic about this, they will say, you know, there's sort of three ways to create things or to have rights um, or to have wealth. You know, and one is if you find something unowned, okay, in the wilderness, right. you know, in the wild homestead attractive land or something like that find an apple uh, and the other is just by contracting with each other you know the two parties to the contract both benefit from the exchange so interaction right. and exchange and then the third is when you create something and so there's this idea that there's three ways of, of of having rights and i think that is the sort of foundation of the principled defense of ip that objectivists and others share they they think of creation as an independent source of rights and I believe this is a complete, completely fallacious notion. And I believe it's because there is, they are, they are conflating value and wealth with rights. I mean, it is certainly true that um, if you use innovation and creativity and your intellect to transform things that you own into more valuable shapes, that you are creating wealth. So ideas can be used to increase wealth. There's no doubt about that. But, but do we need extra property rights for that? And I would say this, uh, that creation is not necessary or sufficient for rights. And you can think of some clear examples for this. I mean, just imagine that you, you find some metal, some iron ore, and you beat it into a sword. Now, you've created a sword, right? right. You've, made, you've made the metal more valuable to you. You may be able to sell it or use it. Um, but do you own the sword because you created it, or do you own it because you were you know, hammering metal that you already owned. I would right. say you own it because you already own the, the matter or the material that you, uh, 
transformed into the sword. So you don't need to say creation is a source of ownership to give you ownership of that sword. You already own the metal that it's made of. So it's not really uh, necessary for ownership. And as for sufficiency, imagine that you steal your neighbor's metal and you make it into a sword. Well, you created the sword, but you're not the owner of it. Your neighbor is. He owned the metal. Or suppose you work for a factory and they own the metal and they hire you to make swords. Well, again, you don't own what you created because it wasn't your material, and by contract, you know, the, the, the owner of the factory owns the sword. So, so in that case, it shows that creation is not sufficient for ownership. So it's, the fallacy is imbuing creation as an independent source of ownership. It's not. It is clearly an important source of wealth, but it is not a source of ownership or rights to arise. And once you dispel that sort of fallacious notion or that myth, then you don't have to think to yourself, well... I created that poem, or I created that um, that recipe, or I created that design. Because if you say that creators own things that they create, well, then of course the creator of a poem, who's going to be the owner? Well, the creator is, the, is the, going to be the owner. But poems are not ownable things. You know, that's the whole problem. All these things we talk about, property rights applying to, and ownership applying to, are scarce resources, things that people can have conflict over. And so for these things, like the metal and the sword, et cetera, we come up with rules to avoid conflict, and we assign the ownership to one person. I mean, ideas are not scarce and can be shared. If you, know, if you right. come up with a way to toast bread, someone else sees you doing it, they can toast bread as well. They haven't taken your idea from you. So ideas are infinitely reproducible, and we're actually lucky in that they are. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the items in the real world are not infinitely reproducible. So right. we have to come up with rules because if I take it from you, then you don't have it anymore. If we were lucky right. enough to have some kind of magical ability or device to, you know, let's say I, I look at your nice automobile and I just, by looking at it, I can blink my eyes and conjure up a copy of that car, it would be beneficial right. to me and it would not harm you at all. That would actually be a good right. thing. Right. But if the advocates of IP almost see the ability to reproduce ideas infinitely with no cost as a bad thing, and that is why that with IP laws they try to impose an artificial scarcity on them to try to make them more like the material world, which unfortunately does not have infinite reproducibility. So I'll, right. I'll, I'll kind of stop my uh, those thoughts there unless you uh, go. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, you, you did allude to some examples with, with the sword and so forth, but mm-hmm. let's take your uh, example previously mentioned, was, which is the carburetor. Let's say that you you have invented a, a new carburetor, which because of some design that you're able to affect, you know, uh, dramatically increases the mileage that that cars can get. Right. And and I am I'm a tinker, and I buy one of these carburetors. You know, legitimate action. I can buy one, and and I I tear it apart, and I look at it, and I go over it, and so forth, and. Uh, I start producing something very, very similar to yours, right. and uh, then I compete against you in the marketplace. Right. Uh, you know, you, you have uh, Stefan's uh, carburetor, and suddenly comes along Peter's carburetor. Right. Uh, let's, let's take both sides of the issue and kind of go down that road and, and okay. compare them, if we could. And uh, so the, the advocates of intellectual property um, would say, um, well, I, I stole your idea, and I'm benefiting unjustly from 
the uh, from your creation, you're making money because you have produced a superior carburetor. And all I did was take it apart, right. learn in effect what you did, uh, did a little twist here and there, you know, metaphorically. And now I'm competing with you and and stealing some of your business. That's that that's the traditional view of Correct. of uh, intellectual property with respect to uh, inventions, right? I think that is at heart okay. what's at the base of it. That's correct. Okay. And so how do you, in, in this specific instance, let's, let's take what you've been talking about, you know, in a l- little more abstract way, and let's pin it down and say, why, why is Peter not violating the rights of Stefan in what he did with what Stefan created in the for- form of a carburetor? So I would say that from a libertarian perspective, if you have a clear understanding of individual rights and property rights, and and even economics, then there are just so many fallacies in that line of reasoning. Uh, I mean, I think there's at least ten that I thought of when you were mentioning. I've forgotten half of them now. But, but for, for example, um, first of all, what you described is the, is the market. <laughs> I mean, the market is emulation and competition. People emulate each other all the time. They learn things, and that's what competition is. If I erect right. a new store, you know, and I, let's say I have a grocery store, and, and I say, hmm, let me have wider aisles, which some people do, right? They may have wider shopping aisles because these people won't ram their carts into each other, and they'll like to shop here better. Well, you know what? You know, the next year or two, all the, all your neighboring uh, competitive, com- competitor uh, shopping uh, supermarkets may start having wider shopping aisles. This is emulation, right. and they're not violating right. your rights. And but because you don't, and, and there was a comment you said about you know uh, stealing your business. Well, you don't have a right, right to your business. Business is the choice of consumers to give you their money. You don't have a right to their money. They have the right to their money to decide where to spend it, right? So I would say there's no, there's no way to uh, objectively distinguish between competition that people approve of, like the grocery stores competing with each other, and the kind of competition you described. I would also right. say that just as Peter, I think, was the second guy in your example, right. <laughs> learned basically from uh, the original inventor, so the original inventor learned from countless other people. He didn't come up with a carburetor on his own. Uh, I mean, it, it's helpful to uh, to. It, I think the Jeff Tucker talk that that you listen to goes into this um, in good detail. He talks about uh, exploding the myths about some of these renowned creators and innovators in history, such right. as uh, Eli Whitney with the cotton gin and the Wright brothers, and um, I think was it Watt. Um, and the idea is instead of viewing history as these peaks of these huge intellectual, uh, sorry, huge, uh, significant, one-of-a-kind inventors who are like right. mountains compared to their competitors. Really, you know, the cotton gin started in the 400s and was there were gradual improvements, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of gradual improvements over the centuries until now. And so if you look at right. this sort of rising line of progress, there's tens of thousands of little dots of, cre- uh, you know, of c- contributions to this idea, and Eli Whitney was one of them. And he wants to draw a bright red circle around his place on that line and say, stop, you know, now I own this. Right, right. And so I would say that, uh, you know, this guy, uh, the first inventor, is also standing on the shoulders of other people, and there's nothing wrong with learning from other people. Okay, and I'll respond to that when we come back. I'm playing the devil's advocate here, but want to flesh this out. So we'll be right back, folks. Uh, Stay with us. You're listening to Liberty News Radio.
right, ladies and gentlemen, you're, we're back here at the Peter Mac Show, and my special guest, Stefan Kinsella, is on the line with me. He's a patent attorney, and we're discussing the, the issue of property rights. And uh, prior to the break, I laid out this example where he had in, in, in invented a, a new carburetor that dramatically improves gas mileage for any car that it's put on, and I came along, and I, I uh, bought a model of it and took it all apart and tweaked it and came up my, with my own version, which is only slightly different. And then I'm selling it on the marketplace, and I'm capturing a lot of the business that was formerly his. And uh, advocates of patents and so forth, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Stefan, would come along and say, well, well, you sort of stole his idea. And let's assume that you had applied for and actually had been granted a patent. They would come along and say, you that Peter stole Stefan's idea by producing this carburetor that's very similar. But one objection, it seems to me, that that one can can uh, levy at that uh, claim is, well, it, what degree did, if I'm understanding you correctly, what degree did I steal? If I just took a, if I just, if I didn't take his carburetor apart and I invented one that's new and happens to be very similar to his, is that stealing his idea? I mean, part of the, which you alluded to earlier, I think, on the show is, Part of it is the arbitrariness with which one has to make a determination about similarity. Is is that is that part of what goes into a patent? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean that that this is yet another um, uh, problem with the patent system. I mean, fr- and from the inside, I can say I, you know, in my arguments, I try not to argue from authority, and I don't think I have any special authority as a patent attorney. It just made me think about the issue. In fact. Um, I, I, I do, th- and I try not to talk inside baseball and t- too much because people's eyes glaze over. But on the other hand, you have these people talking about these complicated legislative schemes that they really know little about or get confused. They confuse trademark, copyright, back and forth, and they have strong sure. opinions on them. And it seems to me sure. that you know you should know what you're talking about. Um, I, I do believe that in a way, the, the complicated nature of these systems, uh, these these illegal regimes, allows libertarians to sort of tolerate them they like i said earlier they sort of assume that they're valid they're part of property rights uh, right. so let me let me mention a couple of things here to untangle this because i think we sometimes need to um most mainstream advocates of patents would would say in the case you described there is no violation of rights because there's no patent or they would say there's a violation of rights if there is a patent only if there's a patent right so okay. they want right. to set up a patent system to cover the case you described for, for utilitarian reasons, they think that if you do this, it will give people a monopoly profit that will lure them into giving it, innovating more, right, or something like that, or disclosing. Right. It. I, let me just, just, yeah, I was perhaps a little remiss or not careful enough. Yeah, I was, I didn't state it, but yeah, let's assume that you had, in fact, applied for and been granted a patent for this right. carburetor, and then clearly after that in time, I came along and did what I did. Right. And the reason I say that is because uh, most modern advocates of IP law would say that if you don't have a patent, what the second guy did is perfectly okay. It's called reverse engineering, and he didn't right. violate any trade secrets. He, I mean, it, look, if, if, you're, if you have in your possession a product legally, you can learn from it as you will. That's called reverse engineering, and it's perfectly legal. Um, right. But what happens is you have these libertarians who have – they try to have a justification for this system, and they'll say, well, the reason why it's okay to have a patent right granted to the first guy you know, is because – well, X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z will be these sort of ad hoc things they throw out, like they'll say, well, plagiarism is wrong. Well, the right. second guy's not really necessarily saying he invented it all on his own, so it's not really plagiarism. Or they'll say, well, theft is wrong, copying is wrong. Well, I mean, I will tell you, as, an, as a patent attorney, in my experience, 
I've been called on, and I just posted about this last night because I realize most people don't realize this, because you'll have these defenders of IP saying uh, it's wrong to steal people's ideas, assuming that you copied it. In, in your example, the second guy copied it. Well, I've right. been called on dozens and dozens of times, maybe over hundreds of times, to analyze a patent that a company or client has been made aware of that they're worried that their, their current product may be infringing. They just learned about this patent. They never heard of this patent before. They might not have even heard of the other company before. They invented their product on their own. So in thousands and millions of cases, maybe the predominant amount of cases, the concern of patent infringement has nothing to do with copying. In fact, right. there is independent invention, and the second, you know, the second company or the company that's worried about patent infringement usually came up with the idea on their own, and then it just so happens that someone else registered something similar two, five, two or three or four or five years ago, and now they're in trouble. But they didn't copy it from the other guy. They just weren't the first right. patent office. Right. Um, did we lose him, Stefan? Hmm. I... Sorry, I'm, I'm still sorry. here. Okay. So I was just pausing for... I, I, I think I was done with my train of thought here. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Sometimes we have technical glitches with the, the connections between the three of us, so I was just concerned for a moment. No, no, everything's fine. No, so I'm sorry. Did, I, I thought I had answered your question or addressed your question. And now I'm concerned because I don't hear you. So, uh, Denny, I'm not sure if we've lost him or if it's simply me that's not hearing him. Okay. Hello? I don't. I don't hear him. Hello. Uh, yeah. Hello. Uh, well, folks, I I'm not sure. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty. This happens occasionally. I, I apologize, but I am not at this point hearing Stefan. He he may be talking. Um, maybe therefore talking over him. So um, uh, as soon as we get everything worked out, we'll uh, we'll be back on. All three of us or <laughs> both of us talking and. Hopefully not talking over one another. Um, Stefan, can you yes. hear me? I'm here. Can you hear me? I I can hear you now. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I heard you the whole time, and I stopped talking when you okay. couldn't hear me. So I don't know. Okay. Happened. Thank you. Sorry about that. Okay. okay. Uh, I'm not sure where 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 I stopped talking, but I was. Well, oh, I was okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what I last heard. What you? Okay. Well, anyway, you're you were you were talking about the fact that there are these companies that invent something. And then they um, either um, enlist, uh, you know, the aid of a patent attorney right, or somebody right, right. to sort of do this search to make sure they haven't, you know, in a very obviously non-intentional way, um, stepped on somebody's quote-unquote intellectual property rights when they clearly didn't, you know, have any even awareness that such an invention it was already patented or already invented right. by somebody else. No, so let, let me give you, like, there's sort of four things patent lawyers do. Number one, they apply for patent applications uh, when someone comes up with a new idea. And sometimes they do that defensively, like I do. I do it just to assemble patents to protect our company. If someone sues us for patent infringement, I can sue them back. Uh, but we're trying to make products to, you know, for a profit. We're not trying to make money off of our patents. Uh, or there are patent litigators who go to court and they, they, they fight these things out. Patent attorneys are also called upon to analyze other people's patents when a company is concerned about them. Now, this could happen either when you want to mimic someone's product that you hear is patented or you see is patented because of a mark on it, and you want to see, am I okay here? Is my, is my competing product going to infringe their patent? 
And in that case, there maybe is some degree of copying. But in a, like I was saying, in the vast majority of cases that I'm familiar with and that a lot of attorneys deal with, there is no copying at all. There's just you learn of this patent after you've already made your product on your own. You invented it on your own. And so the justification for patents given by proponents of patent law, they, they liken it to plagiarism or to copying when, mm-hmm. in fact, patent law does not require you to copy at all for infringement. Mm-hmm. And so if you point this out to this, a libertarian, they'll say, well, I'm not in favor of that. Well, then I'll say, well, what in the hell are you in favor of? And they'll <laughs> say, well, I don't know. I'm not an expert. You're the expert. I'm like, well, then, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what really legal system that you're in favor of. Every time I point out an obvious unjust problem with patents, you back down and say, well, I'm not in favor of that. But then you can't tell me what the system would look like that you are in favor of. So I don't know where to go with you guys. You know, I mean, this is my frustration with libertarian advocates of patent law and copyright law who really right. don't know what they're talking about and don't know what they're in favor of. Right. Okay, uh, just to sort of round this out, we're closing in here on the top of the hour, and, I, and, and to the extent that you can stay on, I, I want to you know explore this a little bit further and also get into the areas of copyright and trademark and, and plagiarism because, I mean, they're obviously related and – you know, lay people like me probably confuse the Correct. confuse the heck out of those things, and it'd be nice if we could sort of, uh, uh, you know, make the clear distinctions. But in the case of the the carburetor, um, and and this is where I am now in terms of my understanding and my belief is, even though I took your carburetor, uh, you know, a carburetor that you invented and I purchased legally, obviously took it apart, re-engineered it, and so forth, did a little tinkering, made it a little better, or at least in convincing. <clears throat> You know the, uh, the 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 market out there, the public that it's better, and I'm selling and I'm capturing what was quote unquote you know I mean what was formerly some of your business, and not in in a you know a, a property right sense, but just business that you had. Mm-hmm. I am not violating your rights because the metal, the very the very pieces of matter that I'm using to construct that belong to me. Correct. And therefore, I'm not I'm not violating your right any more than if I read about carburetors that had been that produced you know, in the last century and came up with my own. Just because it's similar to yours or very similar to yours doesn't mean that I have stolen your idea because, as you said, the idea itself isn't property. It's only the kind, you know, really matter. Well, maybe not really matter, but in this case, matter that I can have property over. Is that right or is that close? I I, I can't believe you came along this morning and they're restating it this well. I think that's beautiful. Um, um I would say every action we take is informed by knowledge, and the knowledge comes from somewhere. So what's right, okay, and you're making a really good point, but we're not going to hear it. So hold that thought, Stefan, and we'll be back here in a few minutes, folks. Thank okay. you very much. Right, hold on, and we're, we're going to be back for the second hour. This is great. Okay. antidote to tyranny is knowledge and acting with courage to defend our most basic rights 
life, liberty, and property. Dedicated to the cause of freedom for everyone. Here's Peter Mack. Welcome back, folks, to the second hour of the Peter Mack Show on this Saturday night, November 21st. My special guest is Stefan Kinsella, and he has agreed to stay on for, uh, I think, at least most of the next hour and continue this discussion about the, the issue of intellectual property rights. And just prior to the break, uh, just to catch you up, we were talking about this. The scenario was Stefan has invented this uh, carburetor that dramatically improves uh, gas mileage, and the only relevance of that is that he's you know, earning a lot of money from it. He's gotten a patent on it. Along comes Peter McCandless. Uh, buys one of these, tears it apart, you know, in the parlance of engineering, re-engineers it, does a few modifications, uh, you know, improves it or perhaps doesn't improve, but but at least in terms of the marketplace is able to garner a portion of the market apparently that Stefan had before. Uh, intellectual rights advocates come along and they say, ah, I'm in violation of his property rights, uh, I, I'm in violation of his patent, I guess. I, I've quote unquote stolen his idea. Uh, I'm therefore liable, uh, you know, I've and so forth. Um, then from what I've learned this morning, I say no. I mean, this this probably isn't defensible in the court of law, but I come along and say no. I simply took metal. I learned about his carburetor just like I could have learned about other carburetors. What I produced may be a very close copy of his, maybe a compilation of other carburetors or other information, other knowledge I have about, you know, carburetor type kinds of things. I'm free to do that. The the claim that I violated his right is arbitrary. That so that's kind of where we're at, right, Stefan? Yeah, yeah, that's a good a, a good recap. And, you know, and okay, I would and I, I would say that you know basically what you're describing is the free market and innovation, competition, emulation, right. learning. Um, I mean, there's this uh, there's this sort of famous quote, um, or at least one I like by Robert Nozick, which is uh, that you know the libertarian what we're in favor of is uh, capitalist acts between consenting adults, right? And this, Say that again. I'm sorry. Say that quote again. He said, you know, uh, the libertarian is unique in that what we favor is the freedom to have capitalist acts between consenting adults. Right. Right. And so he put this word capitalist in there to sort of distinguish us from the civil libertarians who don't recognize the domain of economic freedom, right? Okay. And, to, and to say that, you know, if you're two consenting adults can consent to different types of sexual relations or things like this or sure you know why not capitalist acts like me agreeing to pay right. you one dollar less than the minimum wage etc right and you know right. maybe we need to recognize that there's a the, the right to innovative acts between consenting adults or in, innovative acts in a free society um, I mean basically there's there's nothing wrong with innovating and learning I think the problem is there's sort of a, a, a hidden presumption sometimes that you know, this Peter Mack guy had a contract or, or made a promise to Stefan Kinsella, hey, I'm going to buy your carburetor, but I promise not to learn anything from it or I promise not to compete with you. Uh-huh. And, you know, maybe you can come up with a uh, justification for a signed contract between us that limits me. I mean, maybe instead of selling carburetors to people and just trying to make a, a profit off of it, you want to restrict what people can do with it. And so you're not selling them the complete carburetor. You're selling them a carburetor for certain uses, right? Well, of okay. course, under a free market, then you're going to sell it for a smaller profit because instead of me buying a carburetor, I can do whatever the hell I want with. 
now I've now I've got these obligations, and I'm going to think twice before I sign it. But you know, if you give me a, a, a good enough cut on the price, maybe I'll buy it. Um, right. But the problem is, well, is there a contract? I mean, if there's a contract, yeah, I might agree that the buyer is infringing the rights, the contract rights of the seller mm-hmm. when he copies it or, or learns from it. Even um, I don't think that such contracts would be that popular, go over that well with people in a free market. But right. if it did then sure, the buyer is obligated. The problem is that people point to this and they say, aha, well, you can build a copy, a patent system or even a copyright system out of this. The problem is this only binds or obligates the buyer because he has a contract. But once the information gets out and some third party learns about it, he's free to use it. He, he's not in privity of contract, we call it, or he doesn't have a contract with the seller, with the innovator. right? And I would also say that just think about it this way. Anytime you have an improvement in a carburetor, even by the first guy or the second guy, he's got to learn his information about carburetors somehow. I mean, right. does he do it in school where the universities are now trying to restrict IP restrictions like the University of Texas um, and Harvard on how their students can use what they've learned? Or he's got to learn it from a book? Or he's got to learn it from looking at things he plays with and tinkers with or that he uses and sees in everyday life. I mean, this is what life is about. This is what the market is about. People learning things and using it, using this knowledge to to manipulate their property for useful right. purposes. It's not good. It's, it's not bad. It's good. I agree. I agree. Well, let's, let's venture into uh, the area of... Um of copyright then and and uh and help me and the audience learn about the similarities to the extent there are and the differences with patent law um maybe we could st- we could start with an example or if, if you want to just talk about it in the abstract first that's fine yeah, too. So, so so the way it works is there's this domain of law called intellectual property and um it it it's used to denote four sort of traditional areas of law and two or three innovative or new areas of law. The four traditional ones are patent law, copyright, trademark, and trade secret. Okay, These are the four traditional IP law areas. They're all okay. different. Uh, why they're lumped together, I mean, there's something in common with at least patent and copyright. And then there are more n- newer, more legislated ones that, that are more recent, like uh, database rights in some countries, moral rights, which is sort of an aspect of copyright in some countries, uh, boat hole designs, uh, is a, a special, you know, part of some federal law which protects the way buttholes are designed. Uh, and um, uh, mask works, the way semiconductor masks are laid out, which is sort of a hybrid of copyright. And then among patents, okay. there are three or four types of patents. There's utility patents, which is what you and I think of as the regular patents that cover inventions. Design patents, which sort of like copyrights but a little bit different, and plant patents, which have to do with asexually reproduced plants. Okay, so you have these sort of okay. different areas that the, the Congress has had enough pressure put on it to, to lay out, right? And there are, of course, okay. areas in between which are not covered, perfumes and abstract ideas and some types of business methods and things like this. Now, the, the, the big four, okay, patent is totally federal. Copyright is totally federal. Patents is the exclusive right to make or use or sell an invention that you have a patent on. 
Okay, this is some practical right. device or process. Okay. It doesn't require copying because it's just the right to make or use or sell this invention that you describe. Even if someone else comes up with it on their own or even later, they, you can stop them from making it. A copyright is the right to copy an expression of a creative idea. And this is typically something like a, a novel or, or a painting or, uh, according to court decisions in the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, software or uh, things like that. Um, now, theoretically, cop copyright doesn't, doesn't stop someone else from independently creating the exact same work of art. But that's very rare. Of course, no right. second person right. is not going to create the same painting by Picasso or the same Star Wars movie, uh, in part because they already are aware of these things, and it's impossible to independently reproduce it now because they're aware of it. But if you could right. show that I wrote Atlas Shrugged yesterday in, total, in a total vacuum, which, by the way, is where the word clean room comes into law. In, in technology, clean room refers to you know, one of these Intel rooms with the guys dancing around in the little suits. You know, to keep right. dust particles from uh, from infecting the, uh, the, the the semiconductor crystals that they're growing, but in patent law okay. and copyright law, a clean room is you can prove that you put these guys in an environment where they had no access to the source code of Microsoft or whatever. So if there's any similarity, it's just because it had to be there, you know, to, to solve this problem. But they didn't copy it, so there's no copyright right. problem. So copyright. Okay. Uh, pertains to works of creativity, but it's the way you express them, which is why Jeff Tucker mentioned that recipes are not covered by copyright, because a recipe is a functional way of doing something. You can protect the way you describe it, but a recipe can really only be described in a couple of ways you, quite often, especially for a simple recipe. So there's not much creativity involved in how you describe these sequence of steps. And Again, I'm going to inside baseball here, and I don't want to, but there's an idea, in, uh, there's a doctrine in copyright law called the merger of ideas and expression. And we can return okay. to copyright law for break. <laughs> Hold that thought, mergers and expressions, and uh, we'll be back here in a minute, folks. Stay with us. You're listening to Peter Mac Show. Stefan Kinsella and I will be back shortly. Welcome back to the Peter Mac Show, and we're talking about intellectual property rights. And just uh, here in this uh, segment before, Stefan was laying out, uh, essentially there are four categories, if I understood you right, patents, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets. And then, and then within patents, you were telling us about uh, subdivision, various kinds of patents, and so forth. And, and uh, then you were about to talk about mergers and something else, and I didn't quite get it. Hold on just a second. Yes, can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah, sorry, I had to change phones. My battery went out. Um, no problem. Well, there's a doctrine of, of, called the merger of ideas and expression, and th that doctrine okay. arose in the courts to say that you cannot have a copyright on some expression of an idea if there's really only one or one or two or three ways to describe the underlying idea. Because if you had a copyright on that expression, then you would have a copyright on the idea itself, which is domain of patent law. See, so these areas of law are jealous of each other, which is one reason, for example, there was this famous case called Feist in the Supreme Court about uh, 15 or so years ago 
which uh, basically came down to say that you can't have a copyright on a map because a map is purely factual, or databases, which are purely factual. Even though you have to, I mean, before this, there was this doctrine called sweat of the brow. I mean, these things are crazy. But anyway, (laughs) this is what we patent and IP lawyers deal with. The doctrine called sweat of the brow, which was the idea that if you put your hard work into something so that, you know, sweat started dripping off your eyebrows, then you're, in, you're entitled to some protection. It's almost the Marxian labor theory of value, right? You put some work into it, wow. damn it, you're entitled to something for it. Well, they finally rejected right. that doctrine and said, well, sweat of the brow is not enough. The copyright law requires originality. It can't just be a factual depiction of things. You can't just put work into it to a simple fact, which is what a map is quite right. often, right? So you'll right. actually see, this is something most people don't know, you'll see now in a lot of these maps you'll buy, there are fake streets on them. Okay, so there like to be a fake street with a cul-de-sac on it, which just doesn't exist. And they put that in there so that they can catch copiers. They can say, well, they copied the fake street, which is creative, right? I mean, we had originality to make up this fake street. And so they're co- violating our copyright by copying not the map, but the fake street. And so you have all these people using the good map. And yeah, they're going to say, wait, where's that cul-de-sac? It just doesn't exist. Where's that street? Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, so that's copyright law. The other is trademark law, yeah. which is sort of a hybrid of federal and state law. Uh, trademark was always a common law and a state law uh, field, and it was quasi, uh, partly preempted by federal law, only partly because the grant in the Constitution about IP law talks about inventions and, 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 and authors. Basically, it authorizes copyright and patent law, but it doesn't talk about trademark law. So what Congress has done is they have passed this thing called the Lanham Act, which is the trademark law, federal trademark law, under the Interstate Commerce Clause. But it can only affect commerce that's between states. So if you happen to have some business that's purely local within a state with no effect on other states, then your trademark is governed by state trademark law, not federal trademark law. Okay, but trademark law basically gives you a a potentially perpetual right to the unique use of an identifier of a source of goods, like a name, a brand name, for example, you know, like uh, Kleenex, unless it's lost and becomes generic. And then trade secret is basically the idea that if you keep something secret that's useful to you economically, like the formula for Coca-Cola or how you it's just, yeah. how you mix some chemicals, then you're entitled to keep it secret even if someone spills the beans if it's not too late to, to keep it. So, like, let's say some employee leaves your company and he tells the second employer how this is being made, and there's a danger that this knowledge may get out. Well, that you can go to the court and get an injunction based upon your trade secret right against the second company and the employee, who the former employee, and you can say, listen, you cannot tell anyone about this. It's got to stay a trade secret, and if you tell anyone, you're going to go to jail for contempt of court. So it's a way to keep secrets secret by the force of the state. Okay? Mm-hmm. So there's basic, and, and there's federal law on this too. It's mostly state law, but there's federal law on this, and it's actually, there's like some economic espionage act, uh, and there's federal jail sentences for violation of that. So basically, all these four areas are extremely tainted by the federal government's um, intervention. In my view, patent and copyright are the worst, although trademark law is, has terrible aspects to it. Um, it, it used to it used to protect basically confusing confusing the consumer by by giving using a, a, a trademark or a trade name too similar to that of someone else, but they've added legislatively other things like this anti dilution, 
which says that if you use another mark, even if it doesn't confuse the consumer, even if it doesn't look like the mark of the trademark holder, if it dilutes the value of their mark, you can stop that too, okay, if it tarnishes it or if it dilutes it. So okay. it's completely artificial, arbitrary, and legislative, and it's unjust as well, although I think the, by far the greatest economic and personal liberties damage is done by, um, by copyright and patent. Okay, let me throw in something here. Sort of as I'm listening to you describe all this, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about legislatures, legislators and judges who, I, I guess, this comes about through legislation or, I, I guess, to some degree, like all law, case law gets built up and, and so forth, right? And cases yeah. are settled in a certain way, and that becomes case law, and that becomes a foundation for further cases that are similar obviously precedents are set i think you used the term okay what what uh, aside from the the whole problem with is this based on any principle or is this just arbitrary and all that aside from that for a moment uh stefan what bothers me is well it bothers me at least as much as the the non-principal part is you have people who I don't think are really skilled in these areas. You have a you have a master's degree in electrical engineering. Is it not the case that in in many cases you have judges and or legislatures who really have no technical background who are passing laws and making rulings on things that just frankly don't know what the hell they're doing? Is or is that is that am I being way too critical in making that assessment? I mean, to me that is uh, that is not a um, that's. Just that's not, that's not a fundamental criticism, and and the the reason I say that is because I don't want to be ruled by the technocratic elite, and which is the patent law, the patent bar, right? And these guys do have technical okay. technical credentials, and so they use that they use that expertise to to, to claim an, an extra special authority. Um, I mean, I don't think the problem with okay. patent law is that the court system can't answer technical questions. I mean, okay. I think it's, okay. think it's possible. I no, I. In, uh, as a practical matter, and as a patent practicing patent attorney, yeah, I growls about the incompetence of, of the experts they use and the judges, although I think they do a surprisingly good job. Like I say, I don't believe in re- resorting to authority, so I don't think anyone... Well, I don't, I don't either. I just... Okay, fine. No, no, I think it's I guess I... To have, look, if we're, if we're in favor of justice and we're in favor of reason and we're intelligent people... We can figure things out, and if, we, if we're not experts, we can appoint experts, and that's what courts do. They appoint experts to help them figure out these okay. areas. And actually, okay, I, think that's, that's the, yeah. I, I think the problem is the conceptual underpinning of these IP law areas is completely arbitrary. So, for example, okay. the, the, it's not the fact that you can't figure out what this software does or where its boundaries are. It's that you can't figure out what the, lo- the legal standards really mean. Because it's just some legislatively cobbled up words on paper that was a compromise by Congress, and no one knows what it means. For example, in patent law, the the two primary things you need to get a patent is it has you have to have an invention. Well, there are three. One has to be statutory subject matter, which is a, a ballpark of its own. So, for example, printed matter, which is a book, is not doesn't count, and abstract ideas don't count. But let's say we, let's say we're talking about practical inventions. The two primary tests is your invention has to be, number one, novel, which means new, which means no one ever described this exact invention before. And number two, it has to be non-obvious, 
And to me, this is the heart of patent law and the heart of its ambiguity. What does non-obvious mean? Well, what it means is if you knew of all the prior art that, out, that existed out there, it wouldn't have been obvious to you to come up with this new invention. Okay, well, that's... Okay, I... All right, we'll have to take that up at, on the other side of the bottom of the hour here. I, I, I couldn't quite hit that. Maybe the audience could. So, in any case, folks, we'll be back here with Stefan Kinsella in just a few minutes, and we'll continue this discussion. Stay with us. You're listening to Peter Mac Show on Liberty News Radio. And we're back here with Stefan Kinzelo. I'm sorry, <laughs> got that wrong. Anyway, um, uh, you were sort of talking as we got into there about. I was, I, I was, I what quite I was hear mentioning you. was the sort of the primary test that the patent office and the courts use to determine okay. whether an applied for invention is patentable is whether it's non-obvious in view okay. of the prior art, and non-obviousness is this sort of irreducibly uh, it's the irreducible idea that it's just non-obvious to, to someone who's skilled in the art which is another idea that has no uh, objective or coherent meaning and but the, so the point is you were talking about um, whether these guys aren't technical experts and that's a problem and um, I think the bigger problem is that the the very standards of patent law are arbitrary and vague and they are just literally impossible to apply objectively and fairly um, and even if they even if they could be applied objectively, I think they'd be wrong. I mean, you know, you could you could pass a law that says every redhead should be executed, and that might be sure. pretty damn clear. But it wouldn't right. be right. Um, <laughs> right. But this this law is more like a law saying everyone with hair that looks wrong should be executed. You know, that's that's what these right. are more like. Um, I, right. I don't know what a non obvious idea is. Um, I know how right. to argue it using what's going to persuade a court or an examiner. But this just sort of this right. artificial standards set up by the courts. Okay. Well, wow, it's it's a it's a more complex field than I than I ever imagined. Uh, but that should have been obvious, I suppose, uh, at the beginning of the show when you started talking about, you know, your your libertarian friends of one persuasion who say, well, I'm for intellectual property rights, and then you start laying out specific examples, and they say, well, I don't want that, I don't want that, and yet they're not able to say, you know, in a, a positive sense what they do want. Uh, if we could, Stefan, as we're, we're down here to about uh, less than a half hour, let's talk about um, in some concrete examples that may be helpful to me and, and, the, and the listeners, the notion of uh, copyright infringement. For example, you have your website. If I, it, it, Let's imagine we live in a universe where there, there's no federal state laws imposing everything. You have your website and you have articles on there. If I just copy one of your articles and erase your name and put my name on it and stick it on my website as if I wrote it, absent any loss, I still think that's wrong. I'm not saying, I mean, I am, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to use the word stealing because that has a specific name, but I'm using an idea that it's not mine. I didn't write that. And right. yet I put my name on there as if I wrote it. And that would and, be and we teach that, people, that's, let's play classical plagiarism. I agree with you. Right. And we teach people in colleges, and, and my, my friends, my colleagues in the humanities that demand much more writing, obviously, than I do in a math course, uh, are very uh, quick to uh, uh, point this out to students when they do it. They, they lift a passage 
a, a phrase, uh, whether it's a direct quote or not, and and they fail to give the appropriate citations, and and they're called on the carpet for that, as, as I think they should be. Now, okay, so what is the distinction um, in your mind between plagiarism and copyright violation, or what if there should be such a thing as copyright violation then? I mean, I think there's almost no relation. And basically plagiarism, okay. which I agree is is immoral, or usually is immoral in, in the traditional uh, context. Um, right. And that is I'm pretending... Why... Go ahead. I'm, I was, I'm sorry, I was just trying to emphasize, because I'm pretending that something I wrote, I'm pretending to have written something that I clearly did right. not write. It would be a lie for me to say right. I wrote that. Yeah, it's dishonesty, which most, most people right. recognize as being immoral. Um, right. And, um, uh, and, 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 and this is what IP advocates latch on sort of in an uncareful ad hoc with, you know, they say, well, well, you're for plagiarism if you're anti-IP. As if to say that that IP law is based upon the foundation of plagiarism, and okay, so let's 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 take that one step at a time. First of all, if IP law is based upon the immorality of plagiarism, well, it couldn't be a law because even though it's immoral, it's not illegal. It doesn't violate anyone's rights for me to lie. It doesn't necessarily violate someone's rights for me to to deceive to, to deceive people about um, about authoring something. Okay. Okay. Now, it, it could if you get away with it, which is rare. I mean, if I look, if I there are there are millions of, of public domain works out there right now, Plato, you know, Plato's works, Aristotle's works, Shakespeare's works. I can publish tomorrow one of Shakespeare's plays on the internet. There's no copyright infringement. There are no okay. there's no copyright in that. I can change the name if I want. I can say, you know, uh, A Midsummer's Night's Dream by Stephen Kinsella. Now, what's going to happen? Will anyone really be deceived? Will they take me seriously? Will it even be dishonest, or will it just be stupid and a joke, and will I make myself look like an idiot? I mean, will right. I be able to, to sell uh, uh, Kinsella's Republic and just duplicate <laughs> the words of Plato's Republic? I'm t- perfectly right. free to do that, but you don't see people doing that because right. you know, no one wants to buy a, an altered work of a famous work. They want to buy the original right. thing. Now, in certain right. cases, if you could, if you actually uh, alter the work and deceive the customer, and you you make them a contractual guarantee that I'm the author of this, and if I'm not, you can sue me for damages. Well, okay, then there's fraud. There's a contractual right. claim against that guy, which almost never happens. And if it does, it still wouldn't justify IP law. The point is that copyright infringement and patent infringement do not re- require a showing of plagiarism. They don't. They just require you to copy someone. I mean, look, what's the typical, who's the typical defendant of a copyright claim? It's someone who shared, you know, a Madonna song or something like that. They don't pretend like they wrote Madonna song. They just share it, right? Or in a patent case, again, it's just I'm selling a product and someone sues me and says, hey, you know what, I filed, I filed a patent on that 17, you know, seven years ago. And uh, there's a claim, claim 28 in there. Uh, I can construe that to cover what you're doing. So you, you have to stop or pay me royalties, or you have to just stop because you're competing with me and go out of business. You know, this is why uh, uh, RIM, who makes the BlackBerry, paid $612 million, literally, to um, NTP, the the company that owns the patents, even though the patents that were in question were under re-examination of the patent office and had questionable validity because they were still considered valid at the time, and the court had the power to issue an injunction telling Rim, you cannot sell any more Blackberries. 
which was angering members of Congress because they used blackberries. <laughs> there, there probably would have been, if it had gone further, there probably would have been the federal government would have stepped in and used its power as the issuer of patents to issue what's called a compulsory license, which is sort of like an eminent domain taking. So it's completely bizarre. The, the federal government issues these monopolies called patents and then retains the power to abrogate them, but then they have to issue compensation to the holder of it under the eminent domain statute as if it's a private property, right? I mean, it's completely bizarre. It's almost like the, FTC, uh, the, uh, the FDA drug approval process. You have these companies that make these chemicals that are protected by patents, these pharmaceuticals, and they claim that they need the patent monopoly to help them um, uh, recoup the, the cost of making the drugs or the drugs that never make right. it to market or whatever. And yet right. the same government that's granting them this wonderful patent is imposing so many costs on them in terms of the FDA process, the regulatory process, the delays introduced, the disclosure requirements required by the FDA process, the taxes, the regulations. I mean, so the government hampers these companies, shackles them, makes them into basically handicapped companies until they're screaming for some help, and the government says, okay, well, here's a patent. That'll give you some monopoly rights. It's, so you have these it's, – it's, it's, the, it's the adage of Mises that, you know, controls breed controls. The government imposes regulations on the economy. It causes damage, and people squeal for relief, and the government imposes more controls, and it gets worse and worse right. and worse. And the patent right. law and the copyright law are just part of that. Okay, so on copyright, I, I, I want to be clear on this, and I, I'm pretty uh, naive, I guess, or simple. If, if uh, somebody writes something, and I, uh, I, I take a book, and I sell it, uh, you write it. I, I, take a, I lift a bunch of your writings from your website. I put them into a book. I put your name onto it. I'm not pretending. I'm not plagiarizing. I'm not pretending right. I wrote it. And I just sell it, and I make money off it. Then if, if you had, in fact, copyrighted, you may have, I don't know, your, your writings, I sell it, I'm in violation of copyright law, right? Yes, and, um, and this is another um, uh, misunderstanding. Uh, copyright is not a verb. It's a, it's, it's a thing that happens. It's a right that you have. In other words, it's not up to me whether I have a copyright in my books or my articles or the email that you sent to me today. You have a copyright in that because you wrote it. That's it. Federal law says you have a copyright in that. You don't have to okay. copyright it. You don't have to register for it. You don't have to ask okay. for it. Okay. And you can't even okay. get rid of it. This is a funny thing. <laughs> okay. I mean, let's suppose you wanted to – you had a book that you wanted to dedicate to the world. You didn't want mm -hmm. anyone – it's almost impossible to do it. There's really no way to do it. I mean, let's – because you have a copyright, and the government says you do, which they say you can sue someone to stop them. So if you say – if you tell someone, well – yeah, you can reproduce. If you sign a contract with them, yeah, then they can rely on the contract. But let's say you want to release it to the whole world. It's almost impossible to do it. Copyright is what we call sticky. The government imposes okay, it on people. I, well, we'll have to pick that up. <laughs> the, the music always cuts into you at the last there, Stefan. So we'll, we'll pick that up in a minute, folks. Stay with us. We've got one more segment to go. This is fascinating. I hope it is for you, too. We'll be back here in just a minute. Peter Mack show and we're glad you're listening tonight and I think this is uh, very enlightening for me 
Wow, it's it's a complex subject, and I see why. <laughs> obviously, people need uh, to specialize uh, in in this area of law, Stefan. Um, so let me just be clear. Uh, I'm sorry. I before I do that, uh, you you were you were talking about something as we entered the music just before, and if you could pick it up there again. No, that's that's okay. Go go ahead with with your question. Well, okay. Uh, I just want to be clear on uh, both what the law uh, demands or says is an infraction and the principle that says that it should not be with respect to copyright law. So if I were to take, um, you know, anybody's creation, and, and as you told me uh, in the previous segment, if somebody writes something like the email, that's automatically copyrighted. It's not right. something that requires, you know, the, you know, some stamp of approval from some government, um, you know, bureaucrat to say, yeah, you've got a copyright that, uh, on that now. And, and if I take that and I sell it, and I'm not plagiarizing, so I'm making the, the appropriate attributions to the people that wrote it, let's say you, and I sell it and I make money, then I could be sued, legally, as I understand it, I could be sued for copyright uh, infringement or violation. Correct. Is that's that correct. correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and, and why is that? Tell, tell us why that, in principle, should not be the case. Okay, so under the current law, uh, the copyright statute... Um, I mean, it, the word copyright is a bit of a misnomer, right? Because it's not just a copyright or the right to reproduce. If copyright was only the right to reproduce, uh, to literally reproduce something, it would still be unjust in my view, but it wouldn't be nearly as bad as it is now. There's a bundle of rights. If you look in the copyright statute, they're, they're, they're explicitly uh, enumerated. And uh, in addition to the right to copyright, there's a right to distribute, the right to broadcast, the right to form, things like this. And the worst, in my opinion, is the right to derivative works. So, for example, um, a work that derives from another work that, that's already a work. So, for example, I could not write tomorrow. Uh, in, fact, uh, in fact, this just reminds me of another example. There was a, uh, a sequel written to The Catcher in the Rye, I believe, something like that, recently. And uh, uh, the the author of this sequel to The Catcher in the Rye, which is a derivative work because the characters derive from those in the original, uh, a federal court, this is in the last uh, three or four months, enjoined, issued an injunction against the selling of this book. Now, this is literally book banning by the government, literal book banning. They cannot publish it, and if they do, they, they will go to jail for contempt of court, not just a, for financial penalty. So... The derivative Oops, work, we basically, lost you, you know, or at least I did. <laughs> uh, maybe the same scenario. Okay, uh, hopefully you're hearing me, but uh, hopefully we'll get you back on here as we did. Uh, another little technical glitch here, but okay. As I understand it, I'll just recap since uh, I, I'm not hearing you. Hopefully, I'm hello. Not can you hear you. me? Yeah, I can now. Sorry, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. Just, I didn't know. I was. Uh, uh, I was talking it's about. It's not your. Hello? It's not your fault. It just it happens. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure where I dropped out, but I was talking about. Uh, okay. Yeah. Tell, you can tell me where I dropped off. Uh, well, you you mentioned that there's this uh, this this notion of derivative right. uh, copyright. I'm not sure I'm using. And so you talked about a particular case where someone had uh, used the characters in the book, uh, The Catcher in the Rye, right. and and a, a court had enjoined the uh, if that's the correct word, enjoined yes. the. Mm -hmm. Public publication of this book yes. because of its apparent similarity or it's being derived from the catch yeah, and the Yeah, it was based, up, based upon the original characters. Um, you know, uh, it was it, to enjoin means to issue an injunction. So the court issues right. an order saying you shall not do this, and if you do, 
is to contempt of court and you will go to jail. So this is a literal case of book burn, book banning by 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 virtue of, of copyright law. It's not the only one. So this is an example of what, in my opinion, the worst part of copyright law is actually the derivative rights, the derivative works. I mean, look, let's say I've never seen a Star Wars movie. I've never made a contract with, with uh, George Lucas by any stretch of the imagination. But I've heard, in common culture, I've heard of these characters. And I want to make a, I don't know, a porno film based upon it. Or I okay. want to, you know, just write a novel saying, you know, the further adventures of uh, Han Solo in the Kinsella galaxy. They could stop me from doing that. Although I'm, I am not taking their property. I'm not doing anything to their property. I'm not hurting them. I'm just doing something that people want to listen to. So to me, this is a problem with, with one of the problems with copyright is the derivative, uh, derivative works provision. Okay, okay, I understand that. That seems, yeah, especially egregious. But back to the more mundane, if you will, um, infraction of copyright law. You write something, I compile it, you know, put a nice cover on it, and I offer it for sale. Um, I, I, as I understand it from what you just said, and that's a violation of your copyright, and you could sue me and get a court to enjoin me from doing so or so forth. And the reason it shouldn't do that is... It, and I'm trying to draw the parallel right, here right, because right. With the principle, the reason it shouldn't be is because I'm using my paper and my ink, or if it's an electronic thing, you know, something that belongs to me. You can't copyright an idea, so I'm not quote I'm not stealing your idea. I'm simply taking something and I'm putting it on my paper and I'm selling it, and therefore I haven't in any sense violated your property rights, right? Yes, yes. So I would say we, we libertarians need to be reminded that we, unlike many other political philosophies, we believe we live by right, right? We don't live by right. permission. I don't have to find a permission from the government to do X, Y, or Z. Exactly. I can exactly. do anything I want except prohibited things. So what should be prohibited? Violating the rights of others, which means trespassing against their property, which means using their property without their consent, or which means invading or violating the borders of their property without their consent. So if I'm not doing that, I can do whatever I want. Now, we don't live in Soviet Russia. You know, we don't live, although it's getting worse, but we don't favor a system where we have to ask permission to do things. So I don't need to explain why I have the right to publish this poem or to, to write this novel. I just, right. I just have to be free of infringing or aggressing against or trespassing against the rights of someone else. So they need to show that I'm committing some kind of trespass. And I am not by merely impatterning my own property in a certain way that others find right. valuable. It is not trespassing against the property of anyone else. They are still free to do whatever right. they want to do with their own property. Right. That's the fundamental libertarian case against copyright. Right. That makes sense. That's good. So is it the case, and I don't want to take you too far afield here if you were about to go somewhere else, but uh, in the remaining four minutes or so, I'm, I'm trying to get a better understanding from this discussion in my own mind of what constitutes property. And my initial thought here um, after these two hours or so of discussing this, Stefan, is that property must be something physical, tangible, or is that too limiting? I mean, I, I would say the primary characteristic is it has to have scarcity, which is basically means okay. it's, com it, it's contestable, something that people okay. can fight over. 
Basically, okay. it means something that has a nature, a causal nature, such that if you use it, it excludes my use of it. Only one person can right. use it, right? And so this right. is pro- the problem. If there's a resource like that that multiple, pe- multiple claimants would like to use, well, your use excludes my use. So either we're, if if this if this resource is useful, this scarce resource is useful, then um, either it's going to be fought over forever in a in a kind of a, an anarchistic in the bad sense society, or they're going <laughs> be to be careful. Fooled. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in the bad right. sense, right? In in, in the pejorative, right? right, right. Um, right. No, meaning no rules, uh, right, meaning right. anyone can take it from day to day, and you have no assurance that this is my right. property and I have a right to use it. Right. Or there is Total an chaos. owner assigned to this resource. And so I, I think basically we, we say if there's a resource that someone needs to own to be able to use it, then who owns it? That's the libertarian answer. Right. The libertarian answer is the person with the best connection to it owns it. What's the best connection? Well, we believe it's the person who discovers the resource and puts it to use first, right, or who received it by contract from someone who did. Right. It's actually very, very simple. Right. Well, and – and and to me that's the beauty of of anarchy or libertarianism as 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 we're using it here tonight is the simplicity of it 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 is really just so fundamentally simple seems to me maybe i'm naive in in having that opinion but um uh you're probably hearing me and i've lost you stefan again no Hopefully no i'm here still okay um yeah and and what's helpful to me stefan as we go through this Stefan, I'm sorry, um, is is when you take something and you say, okay, this is illegal, then look at the logical ramifications of that. So, for example, I was thinking of this as you were talking about copyright. If it's, if it's illegal for me to take what you have written and package it in a book and sell it, uh, you know, as, as the current law states, then what if I translate that into German? Is that illegal? Uh, and if that's illegal, yeah. what if I translate it using a language that nobody except one other person understands? Is that illegal? And you start looking at the extreme cases, and then you then to me it forces you back to forces you to revisit or to uncover or identify or make explicit the underlying principle. I agree. And I just ran out of time. Well. Thank you very much for being on. Hold on after we go off the air for just a minute, if you would. And, uh, folks, this will be up uh, for you to listen to again uh, very soon on my website, Peter Mac Show, Liberty News Radio, and uh, elsewhere shortly. So thanks for tuning in, Stefan. Thanks very much for being on, and uh, we'll have you on again soon.